In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Mary, Queen of all hearts. Saint Louis Marie de Montfort. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. The French school of spirituality, that broader movement of theology, spirituality, ministry, uh, out of which St. Louis de Montfort himself emerged as arguably the last great example, had a number of particular characteristics, but one which is fairly important to, for anybody who is interested in Father de Montfort's spirituality and the mechanics of how one grows in it, is that the French school had a fundamental starting point with regard to how one prays. And it consisted in the coupling of two things that customarily we don't tend to put together. We live in a compartmentalized world. You know, if we even think about our experience of our own lives, there's work me, there's at home me, there's out with my friends me, and there's me in church. And we hope that these me's have something in common with one another, but it is amazing how different they can be as people. Um, we live in a world where everything becomes compartmentalized, overly specialized, and communication across realities, across relationships, across elements of life and activity is a skill that we need to discipline ourselves to master and maintain. You see this as well with regard to how we speak about and think about Jesus Christ. It's remarkable if you kind of just pause and do a thought experiment and do the mental math. Can you even count the number of times you've heard Jesus described as servant and the mission of Christ described as service. We grow up with it. It's beat into our heads. Jesus is a servant. Jesus serves. Jesus does. And that's all true. The remarkable thing is that the Gospels spend just as much time showing us Jesus at prayer. And we speak about that much less. We speak about the prayer of Jesus only when he's teaching us prayer or only when he's praying about to work a miracle. But in terms of Jesus as being a man of prayer, a person of prayer, we neglect that. The French school insists that that separation is not healthy nor correct. And so the spirituality of the French school sits upon an intrinsic coupling between 
two fundamentally related and yet often disconnected areas of Christian life, and that is adoration and service. And it insists on the inseparability of the two. You know, what an interesting idea. Because we grow up in the church with these contrasting models. If somebody is about adoration, it means they're dedicating themselves to quiet prayer and they're less active. And if somebody's dedicating himself to service, it means he has less time for prayer. And we live in this world of polar opposites. Either I adore or I serve. Either I serve or I adore. And the French school insists that that is a false separation of two things. In fact, adoration is the wellspring of service. And that if one would serve, one must first know how to adore. Um, and again, we'll get into that word adoration because it doesn't mean exactly what we think it means today with our, the way, again, popular language kind of waters down and misuses the word. Um, but how interesting. And so when Pierre Cardinal de Berulle, who's considered the foundational figure of this movement in France, was writing about Jesus, he described him as being that one at the moment of the incarnation when the word becomes flesh. And again, the French school insists when this happens, something decisive happens. When the word becomes flesh, something decisive happens. But rather than jumping right to it means the world's going to be saved, Cardinal de Berulle says something surprisingly different. It's not Jesus came to save us and the word became flesh. When the word became flesh, something happens for God. What an interesting idea that is. And he says, finally, the good God, the great God, the infinite and mighty God, so worthy of being adored with infinite adoration, he finally has in his creation one who will adore him and can adore him infinitely. Who is Jesus Christ? The one of infinite adoration. What a remarkable starting point. What a remarkable starting point. But then he continues. And, he says, the good God, the great God, the mighty God, so worthy of being served with an infinite service, an infinite obedience, an infinite availability, finally has one in his creation who will serve him infinitely. And who is Jesus as well? He is the one of infinite service of infinite obedience, of infinite availability. But note then this, this twofold way of understanding who the Word made flesh is. Who is Jesus Christ? He is the one of infinite adoration and the one of infinite service. 
These are not separable realities. Both of these realities exist infinitely, perfectly, wonderfully in this one person. Jesus is not compartmentalized. What a, what a beautiful idea that is. And so it is then that for the French school, there becomes an insistence that these two fundamental verbs, to adore and to serve, should not be separated. And a healthy spiritual life will take into account both of these things. And this is a marvelous, a marvelous understanding because it also forms a certain corrective. You know, again, in our desire to compartmentalize, to bracket things, to simplify things, we talk about the spiritual life, the moral life, the pastoral life. And the French school comes back and says, let's just talk about the life, which is the center of all of these things. And a healthy spirituality must always involve more than prayer. Because if it doesn't, the prayer is dead and it's empty, and it goes nowhere. Prayerfulness should produce a moral change. Prayerfulness should produce a certain energy within us for serving the Lord with whom we are in relationship. In other words, prayerfulness that encloses itself in and of it, around itself and never expresses outwards kills itself off. And it becomes an empty mask that we wear, a mask of faithfulness. The same way the tendency to privilege service and work to the extent that we are always busy, always occupied, there is never time, where we fritter away ourselves and become shallower and shallower and shallower and emptier and emptier, likewise empties itself out and kills itself. Service divorced from prayer will die. Prayer that does not find some way of expressing itself outwardly, likewise is withering and stopping itself short. And so for the foundational figures of the French school, and what they're saying is not really anything all that new, but the insistence that they place upon it. And you know, just note how helpful that is because this is not the way we speak today. This is not the way our books on prayer, our books on spirituality in the modern age are written. And here is this sense that unless I drink from a deep well, my ability to serve is only ever going to be shallow. Unless I am seeking to stretch myself as far as I can in the service of the gospel, I am not fully opening my heart to the grace that the kingdom has for me. Um, it goes both ways. The more one is stretched in service, the greater the openness within, the deeper the well from which one drinks, the further one can reach, the longer one can go in his stepping forward. What a marvelous, marvelous way of understanding these things.
And so now then, the issue is if these two elements are important, let's look at how they fit together. Um, because for the French school, this coupling of adoration and service is very much centered on the foundational mystery of our faith. And so Cardinal de Berulle and those who follow him, Jacques Ollier, St. John Hughes, St. Louis de Montfort, are going to insist everything begins with the Almighty. And so note, before it is anything else, adoration involves a turning toward somebody else who is greater than I am, who is beyond me. One doesn't adore something that is lesser than himself. You don't, we don't adore something that is merely the equal of ourselves. Note the word adoration implies a difference of some kind. One is above the other. One is greater than the other. One is less than the other. I understand that I am a creature, and therefore I am not God. I understand that I am weak and changeable and passing and fragile, and therefore I am not God. I understand that there are many things I simply cannot do, and therefore I am not the one who can do all things. I understand that I am, by turns, moderately generous, very selfish, mildly patient, very impatient. I understand that I am this odd mixture of bits of goodness and bits of wickedness, and therefore I am, that not, I am not that one who is all good in the brightness and beauty of all perfection and goodness. Recognizing that when I turn to that one who is all those things, I make myself low before him. That is the beginning of adoration. It stems from the recognition of who God is and who I am, and it produces the response to bend low before the one who is greater. You know, oftentimes we mistake adoration for simply a contemplative look at something or a loving gaze. But it's more than that. It's the admiration that one who is not so great has from his knees for that one who is indeed truly great. In no small measure, this is where the custom of a genuflection comes from. It is that gesture of making myself low before the one who is great and mighty as I enter into his presence. This is also why at Mass, during the Eucharistic prayer, there is a moment in the ritual for the priest to make a moment or a gesture of adoration. 
And it is not when he elevates the host or the chalice and takes his time and looks at it. Liturgically, that is not the moment. Although we presiders often mistake that. The moment is after he places the Blessed Sacrament back on the altar. The rubrics are very clear. And then the presider genuflects in adoration. Now, isn't that interesting? It's not at the elevation. The adoration is when the priest, recognizing who is present, genuflects before him, makes himself low. It's not the moment of lifting. It's the moment of making myself low. And so during the Eucharistic prayer, there are those two moments for the presider to adore. And they are the two genuflections after he places the body of Christ back on the altar and after he places the chalice back on the altar after showing it to the people. You want an interest? But, you'll, but note how the church itself builds that into the liturgy. That adoration begins with a making of oneself low, a genuflection of the spirit, a genuflection of the heart, a genuflection of the attitude. And then one looks up. From the low position, one looks up to the height. And when one looks up to the height, what does one see? And so here now again, in our modern age, we throw the word adore and adoration around and we give it very little content. We reduce it lamentably today to the idea of the Blessed Sacrament is in the monstrance at the altar and I come and sit in the presence. That is a certain form of adoration. But adoration as a spiritual movement is broader than that. And the issue is what happens and how do I do this? First I make myself low and then I look up. And now the question is who do I see? What do I see? Because adoration must always have an object. Adoration is never abstract. Adoration is never without content. It's not a vague feeling. So the French school privileges the mystery of the incarnation. It looks into the Trinity, and this is what it sees. It sees the Word of God, the Son of God, always being born, always coming forth from the Father. The Father is always engendering His Son. The Son is always proceeding from the Father. What a, what a always begotten of the Father, always receiving of the Father, always coming forth from the Father. Pause on that for a second. Because if you contemplate the Son, the Word is always coming forth. Note how readily you see that, that at a certain moment, that coming forth, breaks into time. And as they looked at this, 
This comes now to influence St. Louis de Montfort. Preaching begins in the Trinity. The Word is always going forth. The Word is always coming forth. The Father is always communicating His Word. And in the fullness of time, Jesus Christ, great and powerful, takes flesh. The Word becomes flesh. The great missionary is with us. And who is the great missionary? The one of perfect adoration and perfect service. The interesting thing about the French school is their spirituality is abstract as intellectual as it seems, as contemplative as it seems and is, engendered great mission preachers. Vincent de Paul, Louis de Montfort, John Eudes, and others, they were tremendous apostolic men. And they were men of great and deep adoration. But note how it begins. It begins gazing into the Trinity. And following that gaze, following the movement of God into the Incarnation. And so now it's here that we find the particular personal home of St. Louis de Montfort. The center of gravity of his spirituality is the adoration of the mystery of the Incarnation. The adoration of the Lord becoming flesh of Jesus living in Mary. In fact, in the act of total consecration that comes to us from his hand, if you have a copy at home and you turn toward it in your book or on the page that you have it, you'll see that it begins exactly that way. He addresses himself to Jesus Christ, eternal and incarnate wisdom, and he says, I adore you profoundly in the bosom and splendors of your Father in all eternity, in your coming forth from him. And I adore you profoundly in the womb of Mary at the moment of your incarnation. The act of total consecration, that beautiful and powerful prayer that so many have said, begins as an act of adoration. And the self-giving that comes later is the fruit of following that adoration to its conclusion. How absolutely remarkable that is. But now it begs the question, how does one adore the incarnation? How does one adore that mystery? And Father de Montfort himself minces no words in his Marian writings when he speaks about perfect devotion to Our Lady, the engine of a perfect Christian life, he speaks about one of the essential marks of that spirit is a devotion to the mystery of the Incarnation. And again, we pause. I know what Sacred Heart devotion is. I know what devotion to St. Padre Pio is. I know what the scapular devotion is. What on earth is devotion to the mystery of the Incarnation? It begins, number one, with paying attention to it. This fundamental mystery, this 
event which is decisive for the history of the universe lamentably is something that all too few of us Christians spend much time thinking about. We think about other things. We have our questions about what that annoyingly difficult part of Scripture might mean. We love our arcane little elements of the tradition. And yet this mystery, so unspeakably great, that everything is made different because of it, is something that remains largely unfamiliar to us. So number one, Father de Montfort dedicated himself to taking time to consider that mystery. From the basic question of what does it mean to say even that the word became flesh? To the other basic question of, you know, the, the wonderment we have, uh, what was Mary feeling as Gabriel spoke to her? What was that like? But notice, notice, the minute I begin asking those questions, spiritual doors begin to open. I may not get a clear answer right away, but suddenly everything is beginning to look a little different. Because it's in this mystery, it's in this mystery that the Son of Justice is first showing his face to the world. And one contemplates the incarnation not by first looking at Mary, one does by looking at Jesus, because the incarnation is not, and the Virgin Mary became flesh. The incarnation is, and the Word became flesh. But Mary is the place. The incarnation doesn't take place in Nazareth. It takes place in Mary. It doesn't take place in Israel. It takes place in Mary. And because Mary happened to be in Nazareth, and Nazareth is in Israel, we can speak of the incarnation taking place in that part of the world. But the point on earth where the word became flesh, has a name, and her name is Mary. So look at this. One cannot consider the mystery of the incarnation in its fullness without seeing Mary. In fact, before one sees the human face of Christ, one sees the human face of Mary. How absolutely wondrous this is. For St. Louis de Montfort, he never ceased to be captivated by this. This mystery where Jesus is present, but he shows us his face in this marvelously hidden way. I see his face by gazing at Mary. Why am I gazing at Mary in the first place? I know that's where his face is found. And that's not to say that Mary suddenly grows a beard and she gets taller. What it is to say is this. Just as the moon shows forth light at night, but the light is borrowed, the moon, the brilliance of the moon at night is the light that it receives from the sun. In a sense, when we see the moon, when it's full at night and it brightens the sky, what we're really seeing is the sun by its effect on the moon. On the one hand, it's moonlight. 
But on another hand, it is clothed with the sun. This is Our Lady, the woman clothed with the sun. That is not simply an expression of how she is glorified in heaven. Here, with Jesus within her, she is clothed with the sun too. And when we consider and we look into this mystery, what do we see? The word comes forth and he makes a home, a dwelling in her. The word comes forth and he who is mighty, remember how we begin? He's God and we're not. He who is everything that we're not, unchangeable, deathless, infinite, all-powerful, all-knowing, mysteriously and wondrously encloses himself in so tiny a space. And when I look at that, note, first I see Jesus and what he does. Even without seeing his adult human face here, I understand that the infinite God, the great God, somehow, wondrously, is pleased to contain himself within one of his creatures, within this tiny area. And all of a sudden, I see the true, true temple of God. All of a sudden, I see that wondrous oratory where the adoration of Jesus first roots itself on earth. Now, if we call the Lord the one of infinite adoration, well, think about what we do. Normally, when we want to do adoration, we go to church, don't we? So note, the place from which he turns his gaze, his spiritual gaze, his human gaze, upward to heaven for the very first time, that cloister is Mary. And note what we've just said about her. The oratory of the Lord. The chapel from which the word himself prays. The one from whom, because why does he come as well? To serve the will of his father. The word goes forth to accomplish the reason for which it is spoken. And so he will go forth from here to bear the cross that saves us. And so note, she is also the place of formation from which the servant will emerge and go forth. You know, without, without even going through a 33-day process of preparation for consecration, you know, with formal reflections and formal prayers to say, Note how close this gets us to the very heart of Father de Montfort's spirituality. And note how simple the beginning really is to dedicate time to this remarkable mystery in which the fullness of Christ is enclosed. And so it's here, as he contemplates, as he adores Jesus becoming flesh, he must adore Jesus becoming dependent. And he must then adore the humility of Jesus. 
as he contemplates the great wealth of divinity and the poverty of our humanity, he cannot help but, endure, uh, but adore the poverty of Jesus Christ, who isn't just the friend of the poor, but who makes himself poor. As he contemplates, as he adores, as he considers the word going forth according to the will of his Father, and that this is the way that his Father's will is most perfectly done, he must stop and adore the obedience of Christ, who comes for a reason and will be faithful to the reason for his coming. And notice now, without even seeing the events, the full details of the gospel narrative, notice how much I've learned about Jesus Christ all of a sudden. Notice how here, mysteriously, I meet his person. I meet his character. I meet his virtues. And so for the members of the French school, this kind of prayer, this adoration of Jesus in the way he gives himself, in the way he comes to us. Know what that's doing. It's rooting a call to obedience within them, a call to humility, a call to poverty, and a certain desire to move. Because Jesus doesn't come to rest. Jesus doesn't come to sit still. But notice always the gaze is first to the divine and it follows the divine into this world. And then from there, it moves with the divine out into the world. This is also then the key for a Montfortian understanding of Our Lady. One doesn't begin in terms of contemplating Mary's virtues in the abstract. Rather, what do we do? Again, we follow Jesus. You know, we, don't, we don't start with, well, Mary's pure, Mary's humble, Mary's obedient. Yes, Mary is all of those things. But notice how I can name all of those things in a way that seems a little too easily separated from her son. And when I do that, I'm left with generic understandings of these things. Father de Montfort, Cardinal de Berulle, the others would start someplace else. They would say, if you really want to know her greatness, don't start listing wonderful qualities and thinking about them. Look at this. She is the one to whom the Lord trusted himself. And now ask yourself, what kind of woman would that be? What kind of person would that be? She is the one to whom the Lord entrusted himself and who proved herself worthy of that trust, faithful to that trust. She is the one who received him completely and communicated him completely. Our Lady is not a dirty window. 
or a colored window that blocks certain parts of light from passing through. Everything passes through. And so if the glass is pure, clear, unstained, note what I'm saying then. It's not simply a matter of saying she never committed a sin. Her sinlessness is broader than that. There's nothing in her that impedes the communication of Christ to the world. What a, what a remarkable thing to see and to say. And again, note, it begins with we follow the Lord. And now we see that the Lord leads us to her. And as we consider the Lord's trusting of himself to her, as we consider the Lord humbling himself in dependence on her, we cannot, in, we cannot help in doing that but to see the reflected light of his glory in her because she reflects that trust in the way she honors it. She reflects that self-giving in the way she perfectly surrenders to it. And so as we see then, Our Lady is crowned, yes, but she's crowned first and foremost with the trust of her son. What greater crown than that could there be? And if I see then that she is the dwelling that he has chosen for himself and made for himself, note how quickly then I can ask the question of, and what would such a dwelling be like? What would be those things that are pleasing to the Lord? Most pleasing, in fact, that he would put there. And so for Father de Montfort, a solid devotion to Our Lady comes from knowing her, but knowing her in a way that this knowledge provokes us to love her, to esteem her. It comes from a spirit like this. And so this is why that, that disposition of adoration, it involves a certain amount of consideration. It involves a certain amount of thinking. But then, when I realize just what it is I am considering, it requires the willingness to pause. and simply let the light of the divine shine. And in recognizing that, to bow low before it and see where he is greater than me. And in seeing that, surrender to that. And what happens? This produces a movement of love in the heart, a movement of love a movement of knowledge. I no longer am serving a stranger. And the Lord is more than a friend, more than a companion. And as that happens, what does love seek to do? It seeks to show itself. It seeks to express itself. The more I adore the Lord, the more I will move in harmony with the Lord. And what does the Lord do? He moves forward to bear the cross of the salvation of the world. The two great scripture passages 
that speak of this are in Luke chapter 1, the famous Annunciation Gospel, and St. Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, which speaks of the self-emptying of Jesus Christ. It was the gospel acclamation that we had today. Christ became obedient even unto death, death on a cross. He emptied himself, took the form of a slave. How? Well, we have the how with Gabriel going to Mary. You know, and so note, note now, this preoccupation with the incarnation of the Lord is not simply something that focuses in on the visit of Gabriel to Mary. It is also informed by that marvelous passage from St. Paul, which in our present day, every single Saturday evening, the church recites as part of its evening prayer. So as we get ready for Sunday, on a Saturday evening, that marvelous hymn from Philippians of the self-emptying of Jesus Christ is on the lips of the church as it prays. This same hymn would have run through the prayer of St. Louis de Montfort's own time. It's the other side of the incarnation. It shows us, in a sense, from Jesus' side what is happening. You know, St. Luke, we see Gabriel, we see Mary, we don't see Jesus. St. Paul doesn't show us Gabriel and Mary, but he shows us Christ Jesus emptying himself, taking the form of a slave not grasping after glory. And so again, this is now the other object of adoration. And this passage from Philippians also runs through the act of total consecration. It's literally, it's cited on a couple occasions. Um, the way the Lord takes on the form of a slave, the way the Lord empties himself, the way the Lord will go forward to bear the cross of our salvation. And so now, in adoring this, what do we see? Now we adore also the service of Christ, that he has come to do a work, that he has come for a mission, that he has come to lay down his life for us and for our salvation, and nothing will stop him from doing so. And that this is his glory. His glory is his humble obedience that leads him to the cross. And it is on the cross that he is lifted and on the cross that he is made glorious. Not glorious in the eyes of the world, but glorious in the eyes of God his Father, whom he obeys so perfectly, whom he serves so infinitely. How marvelous that is. And that for Father de Montfort, for the Berulian school of spirituality, to know Jesus, to adore Jesus, involves meeting him in this mystery. Involves pausing with him in this mystery. Involves lingering with him in this mystery. And why? Because in the end, the one who adores the Lord in this way is the one who will likewise go forth to serve the Lord in this way. 
Jesus is the great missionary, adoring him in his coming forth, adoring him in his going forth, is to find oneself being made ready to go forth with him. How beautiful that is. Note, a missionary impulse that doesn't spring from a sense of there's work that has to be done, but actually from this is who Jesus Christ is. But who is Jesus Christ? He is first that one who prays, who adores. And because he is that one, he is that one who will serve. And the model then for the Christian is that twofold element of the human life of Jesus. It is never an either or. It is never an either I am adoring or I am serving. It is never either I am a person of prayer or a person of mission. Rather, it is because I'm a person of mission, I must be a person of prayer. Because I am a person of prayer, I must be a person of mission. There must be a movement. But the first movement, getting back to how we began, is the piece we all too frequently leave off because we're in such a rush to serve. We're in such a rush to get things done that we privilege the element of Jesus where he gets things done. But the most important thing he gets done is he prays. Before he calls his apostles, he prays. Before he picks up his cross, he prays. Before he raises Lazarus, he prays. After he is healed dozens and dozens as the crowds are pressing in on him, he withdraws and prays. When he takes Peter, James, and John to the height of the mountain of the transfiguration, he doesn't, he doesn't bring them there to give them a workshop on how to be better servants. He prays. And in his praying, he shows the face of his glory. But around all the prayer and flowing from all the prayer is the service. So it is then that on his cross, as the Lord stretches out his arms and gives his life for us, what does he do on the cross? He hasn't stopped praying. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. My God, why have you abandoned me? Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Notice that the prayer, the adoration takes place especially in the service. And the two in the end become one. The two in the end are one in a mysterious way. And so for Father de Montfort, for Father de Montfort, obedience is its own sacrifice that honors the Lord. Humility is its own sweet-smelling offering which honors the Lord. The willingness to bear my cross is both at one and the same time an act of service and an act of prayer. You know how wonderful that is? It's not, I'm going to do this and I'll pray later. And so come bringing all of this around then. One of the amazing things when one studies 
a number of the great spiritual masters is how different what they say about spiritual growth is than what we tend to think it is today. Workshops on prayer begin with techniques, suggestions for prayers that you can say. How to grow spiritually often involves recommended resources that we should read. And it's not that these things have no value, but from deeper hearts and from deeper spiritual wells comes a different way of framing that conversation. Teresa Avila, for example, when writing about her seven interior mansions, has very little to recommend with regard to specific techniques and specific prayers at the beginning stages, which is exactly where we think you should have all the recommendations, right? You know, isn't that amazing? Because, and it's not that there is no importance in those things, it's that we place too much importance in those things. The great recommendation of the masters is seek to know and do the will of God and you will grow. Now, isn't that, isn't that refreshing? There's no, here's the recipe. If you say this prayer every day, these graces will come. Is here's how you control your breathing so you can learn to meditate. None of that. Seek to know and do the will of God, desire to please him. And what will happen? Now, the assumption is you'll find some prayers to say along the way. You know, the assumption is you'll be doing some praying. But the interesting thing is the great masters are not so concerned with what exactly that is. As long as there's a fundamental energy to look toward the Lord, to seek to know his will, and to begin trying to conform ourselves to it. And what happens? The minute I do that, I run right up against the fact that I'm a sinner and I need to stop doing that. But sometimes, if all I'm really worried about is making sure I get my five minutes of prayer time with my favorite prayer in, that's the easiest thing for me to ignore. So note, and then, as I move toward through this issue of repenting and beginning to correct my behavior, all of a sudden, I see ways where I can begin to grow in virtue. And why? It's what the Lord desires of me. So let me try and do that. And note what happens. Regardless of what prayer I'm saying in the morning, if I'm doing this, I'm going to be growing, and I'm going to make progress. And it's to the heart and the life that is making progress in that way that the higher, more rarefied forms of prayer are given, typically. Isn't that interesting? It's not a matter of technique. It's a matter of gazing at the Lord, seeking to know Him, and then beginning to correspond to that knowledge. Now, if you think about that, 
if you think. So note how that dovetails with what we just described about St. Louis de Montfort and his insistence on always wanting to look at that mystery of the incarnation. Seeing who the Lord is and then recognizing that that's who I should be too. That there's a response. I know the will and so I try to conform myself. And all of a sudden, if I am becoming better at certain times of the day, if in certain situations I am arresting my wrong impulses, you know what's implied underneath that? I am yours, and this is yours too. And as I begin to grow in virtue for the sake of the Lord, what's implied? I am yours, and I want to be more yours. And all of that momentum runs in a very particular direction, which we say here a lot at the shrine, which is, I am all yours, and all that is mine is yours. It begins with the will. and the desire to conform my will to his, my actions to his will, myself to his will. And what does that really mean? I am giving myself. And you know, that's the marvelous thing in some of the older masters. They, they don't come right out and say that this is really what's going on under the hood. But if you look at it, if you look at it, the reason why this is so powerful and so more effective than recipes for this is what a healthy hour of prayer time looks like. And again, that's not bad. You know, if we really are serious about our spiritual growth, we're going to want to attend to those things. But normally the masters will say first things first. Let's work on how we're behaving too. Let's not forget that. Um, let's dedicate ourselves to seeking first the kingdom and the righteousness and the other things will come. Um, so the advice is not forget about all those prayers you were saying. The issue is rather make sure that you haven't left behind the more valuable thing, which is that, note, it's not directly a prayer in and of itself, but it can't be done without a certain prayerfulness of disposition. I can't seek to do the will of God without at least a certain prayerful disposition. You know, that's, you know, it's not a prayer that I'm saying necessarily at that moment, but I'm, the minute I am in the category space of wanting to surrender to the will of God, there is a certain element of worship about that. There is a certain prayerfulness about that. For Father de Montfort, if we want to talk now about a method of prayer, for him it was contemplation unfolding into adoration of the incarnation of the Lord, which is what allowed him to attain such a deep union with Our Lady and with Our Lord, and such a powerful desire to embrace that poverty, the humility, and the obedience that mark the life of Christ. And in seeing those things, he understood. God is more glorified by these things in me 
than by mighty works I could do on my own. But if I have these things in me, the Lord will take care of the heavy lifting with the mighty works. And what a marvelous, what a marvelous understanding that is. So in the hope that this is somehow helpful for your spiritual growth, I offer these few reflections and thoughts. Um, all of this is easier said than done, but the beautiful thing is the simplicity of it. The beautiful thing is the simplicity of it. We're the ones who make things complicated. The spiritual life is fairly simple. It's not easy, but it is fairly simple. That's why St. Louis Montfort describes the essence of the preparation for consecration as really just one thing. We empty ourselves of the spirit of the world, which is opposed to the spirit of the gospel, so that we can be filled by the spirit of Jesus Christ. Simple. Difficult to do, but simple. Sometimes, though, we make things so complicated, we miss the beautifully simple reality that sits at the base of all of this. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Thank you guys for coming out.